0: Hello everyone. I'm Monte Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries and I'm joined by my son Ephraim. And this is another question and answer program. And uh, let me just say to you, if you'd like to be a part of this future program, all you have to do is send your questions into us. The email address is qa at and you send your biblical questions into us uh, so that we can make a part of this program. So, With the aid of the Holy Spirit and our understanding of the Scriptures, we're going to attempt to answer some of the questions that have been sent in to us by you uh, for this program. So, Ephraim... uh... Let's get us underway. Let's commit the time to the Lord in prayer. Would you lead us, please? And then we'll get right to the questions. Very
1: good. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this time. And Father, we thank you for every person here who's a part of our ministry. And uh, Father, we thank you for all of these questions. And Father, I pray that everything that we do is uh, edifying to the brethren and glorifies your name and your kingdom. So Father, we pray your will be done in all things and that your kingdom come very soon. And uh, Father, I pray that you just make us vessels fit for your use and uh, that we we would continue to do your work and pour out your anointing for the brethren. So we thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Our first question, uh, we've got a couple of questions from Bill here. We'll start with the first one here. Uh, in John 3.13, which reads, No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Yeshua says no one has gone up into heaven except he who came down from heaven. Could you please explain the fact that we are told that Elijah left Elisha and went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And what about people who have had near-death experiences? We're also told in Revelation that uh, Satan accuses us mortals before the throne of heaven. And then I believe it was Isaiah where Satan was uh, was accusing and the Lord said to put a white robe on him. Please help us to understand this, this possible contradiction between those who are in heaven or ascending to heaven or from heaven.
0: Okay, well there's actually really two uh, topics too in this question that Bill has asked. Let me address the the first one uh, he who ascends and descends uh, if you look in the john three passage this is a conversation between yeshua and nicodemus nicodemus had come that night and he knew that yeshua was a good teacher he knew he couldn't do the things he was doing except by the aid of god uh, assisting him to accomplish them and so he's perplexed as to how to sort all the stuff out that he's been teaching and if you recall one of the things that he said to him was very confusing to Nicodemus was, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus was at a loss completely to understand that. Well, as a part of that conversation, Yeshua asks him a question. How is it that you're a ruler of this people and you do not know these things? And he confronts him with two topics. Uh, about, one, a he who ascends and descends, and about Moses' staff being lifted up in the wilderness. And those are two prophecies about the Messiah. They, they come from the scriptures. So let's focus in on the uh, ascend and descend. This is called the greatest prophecy of the Messiah. And what it comes from is from the example of Moses at Mount Sinai, uh, going up on the mountain and descending from the mountain. If you remember, when God came to the children of Israel, He descended, came down to the top of the mountain. He spoke the Ten Commandments, um, and and He began to build this relationship with the people of Israel, the the sons of Jacob. Um, and, but Moses made a couple of trips. He, he had to go up and down the mountain a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Get the tablets, then he went up and got the second set of tablets. And what came out of that was how Israel agreed to a relationship with God. They didn't want to hear his voice from the mountain anymore. Uh, they wanted Moses to go up, get the information, and bring it back down to them. They wanted to hear the instruction from a man, not God's booming voice that came from the mountain. Well, God accepted that, and one of the great prophecies of the Messiah is that he will come from the mountain, he will descend, and he will speak to us as a man, and then he will ascend. And so he who goes down, he who goes up. He who ascends, he who descends. And just by the sheer definition of the word ascend, it means you have to have been lower to begin with, So if you descend, then that means you have to ascend. And if you ascend, that means you had to have descended. It really is a prophecy and a teaching that comes from when Moses was going up and down, up and down the mountain. uh, And God was building the relationship. And the agreement was made that this is what the Messiah would do. He would descend from the mountain, come down to us, and then he would ascend. So it's it's referred to as the greatest prophecy of the messiah now that's what you hear is being addressed here that's one whole topic all by itself the second question he's really asking about is coming into the very presence of god and whether or not you know you can have it well again let's go back to moses you know moses asked to see the glory of god and god had to put him in the cleft of the rock and shield his eyes so that he couldn't see him. And as a result, a veil was put over him because he was too close um, to God and it, the brightness. And, and God did say that if any man came in and actually saw him face to face like that, he would he'd die. You know, he can't do it. Um, and it has, it has to do with there has to be some separation. And in the temple, we always had a veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. So when you came in to see God, He was at the mercy seat, but there's a veil. Mm-hmm. It's to protect us because you know, and we we can't come that close into the glory of God. But for some reason, God says we can't exist in the same space with Him, so He has to manifest Himself to us and reveal Himself. Uh, and all of the other references have to do with a version of that same thing: the veil, not being able to come into the presence. But we also remember that the expression Mm face-to-face is actually an expression of speaking directly. So when it says, Moses, I I meet with Moses face-to-face, it means I don't come to him in a vision and a dream. I speak directly with him. He speaks directly with me. And that's what Moses used to do. He would go into the tabernacle, and he would speak toward the Holy of Holies, and God would speak back with him not like with aaron or miriam or others Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's the expression face to face it just simply means speaking directly Mm -hmm. and in fact god says in the future uh, in the great tribulation that he's going to deal with each one of us face to face that there will be a, a direct communication between us and god it doesn't mean that we go up on the mountain and we look into the face of god You know, because he's already laid that out as to what can be. So that's. A simple uh, kind of answer without getting too complicated about it there are many other nuances that go with that
1: I, I think the, the question also just to, to kind of wrap this up just a little bit more directly comparing Elijah going up to heaven in a whirlwind yeah versus Yeshua ascending to heaven well, what's the difference well, between the, those
0: the, the difference is that he ascended to the right hand of the Almighty Elijah didn't ascend to the right hand of the Almighty he ascended into the heavenlies. He had descended into where, where God is at. A
1: version of the presence of God. Right,
0: right, exactly. But, but Yeshua literally went to the right hand of the Almighty and took a seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't go up and sit right or left of the Almighty when we go up to heaven, nor did Elijah do that. Yeah. I this just popped in my head if
1: we were to maybe relate Yeshua's ascension to the mountain or up to heaven in comparison to Moses would Elijah's almost be like Joshua who was halfway up the mountain would there almost be like a, well, like a similarity all, they're,
0: they're, they're, there well, let me I agree that is one of the parallels but let me give you an even stronger one Elijah you know when he ran away from Jezebel where did he go? He went to Mount Sinai. He went to Mount Horeb. And he went into the very cave. He went into the very place where Moses was at when he was dealing with God. And um, uh, and that's when God came down on the mountain. There was fire and there was great earthquake and it was scary and things like that. Uh, and Elijah had his own experience, uh, you know, with dealing with God. and And the difference is rather than a big booming voice that went down, Elijah had the experience of the small, quiet voice, but it was still God speaking directly with him. Right. And um, and that's how he dispatched Elijah back to the land, you know, to deal with the issues that were happening in his day. The, uh, so th- there's a lot of different nuances on the thing, but just to uh, summarize again one more time he who ascends and descends is one of the greatest prophecies there is the messiah it's about the whole idea of the messiah coming from heaven to come down and do the work of redemption and then returning back to the father and then coming one more to establish the kingdom ascending descending very good
1: All right, next question, also from Bill. Um, He asks this, My fellowship has been using different scripture portions um, from a different website. However, I want to change over to the portions that you have on your calendar. A couple of questions that will be asked. Um, The portions that you use for the Torah and Haftorah. Are they exact portions that are used weekly around the world in the synagogues? Also, uh with regard to the Brit Hadashah, I heard Messianic fellowships use these particular portions, um but I'd like to know is um, if that is the if there's a reason why, uh where did these start? Where did these particular portions come from so that I can uh talk to my fellowship and explain some of these things? All right.
0: So the Torah and Haftorah portions that we follow they are the standard portions mm-hmm. that have been part of the annual teaching cycle of the Torah for centuries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh there is a triannual portion mm-hmm. where they teach the Torah over the course of 3 years. So the portions will separate out a little bit different from week to week from that but we're talking about the annual teaching of the torah cycle and the ones that we use are the standard ones of all synagogues throughout the world now when it comes to the new testament portions that he's referring to um, i was a part of this uh... with other brethren uh... that we're talking thirty five forty years ago mm-hmm. um, in the messianic movement we went through all of those torah portions and we said hey there's some parallels in the new testament and so we pulled out various passages just like other just like the rabbis have pulled out passages from the Hof Torah to, to to yeah to to follow along with the torah portion we do the same thing and where did it all come from well that's one of the products of the modern messianic movement um, we messianic brethren pull those now you may find some variations in fact i've seen some Um, where this brother has chosen this passage, say, out of Ephesians, whereas this brother got this portion out of Galatians to talk about the same topic. It's okay. Uh, It's not that these are set hard. It's just that we're in unity in a weekly teaching in the public readings. It's just that we're, we're addressing the same topics in the course of it so that you can go from place to place, and you're hearing the same instruction in different places, and you can join in. Uh, for it so there's no set standard on new testament passages it's you know if you find some brethren that have got a particular passage that ties well into and stays consistent with the Torah or hof Torah, Mm -hmm. wonderful
1: yeah. You know. uh, also, with regard to the Hoff Torah, because I've worked on our calendar mm-hmm. giving some of those things, there are some tradition, some differences amongst the Ashkenazic so and Shephardic tradition when it comes to the Haftor. And some of them are very minor, like they just start the passage you know, a couple of verses ahead of the other one. Right. And, in our, and in our calendar, I've actually put in like the entire encompassing portion. Because again, these are, these are traditional stories from the prophets right. that tie back into the Torah portion. So there's certain aspects of them that tie more so in, into the story of the Torah. And sometimes you can start the entire story from the beginning rather than starting in the middle and the, and the parallels. And so when it comes to all of those scriptures, they're all they're all traditional as they tie back into these stories of Torah right. and especially in the New Testament. And so there's many others that you'll find a passage in the New Testament or in the prophets that you think relates tremendously with uh, with the Torah portion, I, one I, I can think of is, you know, the story of Abraham buying the field of Machpala yeah. and how it relates to David buying the threshing floor for the temple and how there's a deed there. However, the passages about David buying the threshing floor is not a part of the Haftorah of that. Of that Torah portion, right. though clearly you can see a parallel there in in another part of Scripture. Of sure, talking. and so when it comes to all of those uh, all of those other passages as they connect to, they're all completely traditional. I, I could imagine somebody can come up and, and draw out. There's the Psalms are actually never quoted in the uh, on the Haftorah portions. However, there's amazing parallels in the Book of Psalms. Back so to Torah portions.
0: I am talking about the very thing that was going on in the Torah.
1: Precisely. So, with all of those additional readings as they tie into the Torah portion, they're all whatever is edifying to your brethren, to your fellowship, to the teacher, however, whatever passages they want to draw out, they can stick to the traditional readings, or they can pull out and, 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 and draw out other parallels to in right. the New Testament and, and otherwise.
0: What this is for is... Uh, it's part, the traditional readings we could also say the public readings mm-hmm. um, these are things that are publicly shared and Paul exhorted Timothy to make sure that you give attention to the public readings mm-hmm. with the brethren and it's just part of the, the base spiritual instruction that's given and w- there's no hard and fast rule for example oh I used this verse and it wasn't included in the list no, 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 that's not what the issue is. Right. The issue is, here's some suggested public readings. By the way, if you can expand on that, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but the, we wanted to touch on this because of the parallel.
1: Right. And as we've gone through and started doing the Hof tour readings on our B'nai Shalom broadcast, right. you've kind of stuck to those public readings, the ones that are, that yeah. are listed so there. That
0: you understand what is the traditional public reading mm-hmm. uh, for it. But if you're teaching on that topic and the topics that are born out of it, well i've also had the liberty to to share some other things you know that go hand in hand with that so as far as sharing back with your fellowship brother uh, these are just the public readings these are the ones that traditionally been done is there hard and fast rule that says oh you got to use this you can't use that no that's not correct at all and that's the reason why you might see some variation especially when it comes to the new testament there's many of us uh, and various teachers that when they put a tour public reading thing together for their congregation or fellowship they might choose this passage whereas another might choose that other passage but they're really about the same subject
1: and the and the ultimate goal i think would be for any really good Torah teacher would be able to devote the time energy three hours per tour portion and try out every single parallel you can pull out of other parts of scripture yeah. that would be the You know,
0: there are are some Torah portions that you could talk for eight hours and you're just scratching the surface. That's the reason why we teach them uh, week after week, year after year, because as as, uh, all Torah teachers know, there's 70 faces to the Torah. You could do this for 70 years before you have to worry about being redundant. Um, And so that and I've only been teaching it for about 35 or 34 years. So I'm not even quite halfway. Uh, you know getting into it so there's still plenty to teach
1: still plenty to do of course and, but we always want to cut it into digestible little portions right. for the people to be able to in, uh, of course very good all right our next question comes from Ali Vam. Uh, I recently had an uncle state that he believes that we are not yet in the New Covenant since Jeremiah 31 describes events that have not come to pass of when the Lord will make his New Covenant. Can you expand more on this?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's just a semantics thing. Are we in the New Covenant? Yes. Have we completed the New Covenant? No. No. There are still things still being done, manifested. Uh, The new covenant uh, is not completed until you no longer have to say to another man, know the Lord, for all will know the Lord. Well, we don't get to that until we're in the kingdom with the Messiah directly. So the new covenant extends all the way into the kingdom. And so is it completed? No. Are we in it? Yes. Just yeah, that's, like, that's the way they answer just, that.
1: Just like a marriage till death do us part, that doesn't mean that that has to be fulfilled before you confirm that it was a covenant. Right, it's you're, in the, covenant. you're in the covenant, I mean, but the you're terms in the
0: marriage. It's just you know it hasn't the, been the, the,
1: the, yet. the terms of uh, the complete terms of the covenant have not yet been fulfilled. Sounds good. Next question from Charles. Uh, I noticed how Leviathan is described in such detail at the end of the book of Job. It occurred to me that this was a very real creature. I then found a prophecy in Isaiah 27, verse 1, where God punishes the Leviathan at the end times. I feel like many people don't talk um, about it or its biblical meaning. Could you elaborate on the purpose, the meaning of the Leviathan, and how it's related to the end times? Um, any other information you can provide would help. Shalom.
0: Well, Leviathan is a, a somewhat of a mysterious creature. Um, and, in fact, I will just tell you, ancient sailors, since I used to be in the Navy, ancient sailors used to think there was a great sea monster called Leviathan. And any time that a ship used to go out and never return, and it was assumed it had sunk and sailors had been lost, what well, the, the belief was that maybe Leviathan had showed up and destroyed the ship and the crew uh, for it. So there's a kind of a, a, a mysterious element to it. Uh, and it, the reference to Leviathan is not that common. It's not that often. It's only the a few scant references to it. But the metaphor, if you will, that I see at, of the end times is Leviathan is also given as to be a picture of Hasatan, Satan, the serpent, at the end of the ages, the, the serpent, the dragon, yeah. uh, and that he will be defeated by God at, at the end. And whether you call him Satan or whether you call him the, the the great dragon, or whether you call him Leviathan, we all know we're talking about the same thing. Right. Uh, some have suggested that Leviathan came out of of um, uh, with early man and so forth, a great sea creature. And some ac- actually have suggested that maybe it's a leftover of the dinosaurs, mm-hmm. um, of dinosaurs well. and so forth. So, but and you've heard of the Loch Ness monster and other things and. And um, so how that ties into that's more of fears and rumors and stories and legends Mm -hmm. uh, than it is actually. So what I have offered to people that when you hear these references in the scripture, at a minimum, you want to take the metaphor because the metaphor is something opposed to God, Mm -hmm. uh, an enemy of God. Mm -hmm. And the most direct reference is the one that was given in Revelation about destroying the enemy, God's enemy. Right. So that's about that's really about the, the limit of what we can tell you about it.
1: I mean I've always thought and, and and people believed, yeah, that this this was a real creature that existed at some point in time. It's got a description of it, it's like that it even breathes fire, it's like a serpent, it's like this and the people have said that could be a dinosaur, that could be a sea creature or something. So we obviously don't have a good fossil record that describes unless one of the dinosaurs was it, that of this creature that existed. But then I think when it's talking about at the end of the age or likening Hasatan to a dragon or Leviathan or whatever it is, same way that the enemy is described as a lion in part of scripture as well. You're taking a real real creature that might have existed or or did exist, and then that's simply a metaphor and a picture for this, not to say that, this creature is still around t- today, and-, and God will physically judge some sort of dragon that's still alive on earth. But the metaphor is for the enemy, the adversary, Hasatan.
0: Well, and and again, not to belabor the point, but having been in the Navy uh, and been a sailor and gone to the sea and things like that, I can, in my mind's eye, understand the older sailors coming back to port, going into the tavern and telling stories about leviathan which makes for great stories while we're enjoying the tavern and so so you know there's there's legend and other things associated with it and it's but it's an ancient thing known by sailors of the world throughout the ages
1: all right very good the next question comes from Stacy. She says this greetings. I'm wondering how uh, luke seventeen thirty four and matthew twenty four forty about one being take, taken and one being left fits into the end days puzzle appreciate your effort on the teachings and the festivals of so obviously luke the passage says that uh, at night there will be two in one bed one will be taken the other will be left and matthew says there'll be two men in the field one will be taken and one will be left
0: well here's where the confusion comes in um it's not describing in the various gospels the same event the same thing for example in matthew's um, um rendition of this in matthew 24 it sounds like he's talking about those that are taken it sounds like the picture of the resurrection and the rapture Mm -hmm. about him the sudden catching up uh, of the brethren but if you go to the luke passage it sounds like the one who's being taken is being taken to judgment Um, personally i think it it's it's the confusion of the writers of the gospels of trying, they're trying to repeat everything that Yeshua said on that, but they don't necessarily lay it out in a clear narrative in sequence. You have to really study all of the passages Mark, Luke, Matthew. You've got to follow all the synoptic gospels to kind of get the flow of what's really being expressed. If you hang your hat on just one gospel and one account, it, it, it can get to be, it appears to be confusing. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on with this phrase one who's taken, one who's left. Let me go ahead and just super super simplify it. I think it's a reference to the resurrection. I think it's a reference to the uh, rapture, as we call it, those who are alive, caught up to be with the Lord. Um, And the references in Luke to the judgment, well, we know the day of the Lord comes immediately after it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do know that there are some appointed to judgment, but there are others who are appointed to life. And so I think that's really what it is. But to me, the clearest gospel on this account is probably go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Matthew lays out a very good sequence. He really is referring directly to what Yeshua said uh, in the sequence that I think that Yeshua said it. So I think that's where the clarity is at. But there is a parallel between those two passages yeah. having to do yeah. with Luke rapture is, uh, uh, is, uh, Luke in his, uh, I think it's Luke 21. Uh, 22 and so forth he's repeating what we call the Olivet discourse, this is where Messiah and talked about Jerusalem and the future end of the ages and things like that but it's, it, it's mixed with the destruction that would come with Jerusalem as well as the end of the age issues because all those questions were asked, the question was asked about the destruction of Jerusalem what would be the sign of the end of the ages what would be the sign of your coming um, and there's three questions and that's the key, is going into the Gospels and parsing out. Now, is this answering that question, or is it answering this other question? That's that's the key to that study. Okay.
1: Very good. Our next question comes from Anne. She says, Hi, Monty. I'm from South Africa. Please help. Uh, which calendar are we to use for Sabbath keeping, lunar, solar, Gregorian, new moon, etc.? Uh, Which Bible is the best to use for the right names of our Creator? She says Yahuwah and the son of Yahushua.
0: Kind regards. Okay Uh, So let's just answer the question. There are there's a Hebrew calendar Mm -hmm. Okay, and we call it the diaspora calendar. It was the Hillel calendar Created for the dispersed of the brethren. So if you want to follow the Hebrew calendar that's the one you're going to want to follow. Mm -hmm. The calendar that we publish and put out for the brethren is based on the Hillel calendar Um, and it's a calculated calendar that was done many many years ago Um, in fact it's over 1700 years old and any space-time calculation is going to have slight errors especially when it comes to the confusion of exactly when the first of the month is and when the new moon comes and that's where the the error is in the Hillel calendar the 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 hebrew calendar but that's easily corrected Mm -hmm. uh by tracking you know the the re-updating the calculation Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things in our calendar we try to do now you also mentioned a series of other calendars like lunar sabbath and new moon moon and and things like this all of these uh tie in uh, to a certain extent But one should not be weighed over the other. In other words, the people that are jumping on the new moon calendar, let me tell you what the problem is, is they can never do the interleaving element of do we have ADAR-1 or ADAR-2. And then you have the people that are trying to come up with the, uh, well, we saw the barley in the ear in the land, and so let's have Nissan you know, start now, springtime start now. And it gets out of kilter with the calculated calendar. And then you have the lunar Sabbath thing where we don't follow every seven days with the Sabbath while well, we have to follow the phases of the moon, and so it gets very confusing. Mm-hmm. Let me just tell you, it, it, the, the most stable calendar that we have available to us is the Diaspora calendar, with some minor corrections, which are uh, observations. They're pretty simple to do. They're not complicated to do. And so, what I'd say is, wherever fellowship you're at, you know, the leaders are going to have to make a decision yes. so that they can keep the appointed times of the Lord. My, my, this is what I've always said to the brethren. If you're in a fellowship, and this is what the leadership has said cooperate with them, you know, uh, agree in that fellowship to be in fellowship for the appointed times. And don't be shocked when another group is slightly different and a few days off or whatever. Um, Be in fellowship with your like-minded brethren. By the way, as an individual believer, I don't believe you're held to account at this level. I believe leaders are held to the account on how to lead and direct the people for the appointed times um you're supposed to just have a heart to want to obey the lord and then join with your like-minded brethren
1: right. next question was a bible translation best one to use maybe for oh.
0: well it, it, what i always say on that is uh it, that's really comes down to an opinion of, of you getting your nose in the book me personally uh this i made this decision many years ago i used to be a king james kind of guy when i first got started that was the accepted version but then all of a sudden you know in the seventies here came the new living bible and then i found out there was other different versions of bibles and so forth one of them that came out was the new american standard bible that's the one i prefer to use let me tell you why i'm an american i speak american english i don't even speak the old english i speak american english and in my own personal studies particularly in the hebrew I liked and enjoyed and found myself in way more agreement with the translators when they would translate out of the Hebrew into American English, that the New American Standard did a better job. Now, there's other versions, New International Version. That's not just American. That's, you know, for English speaking. And so some people prefer that. Some people prefer to just stick with the King James Version if you want to deal with Elizabethan English mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Here's how I answer for most people how to address this. Which Bible version is it that you find that seems to work for you and you get your nose in the book and start studying and start learning God's Word, then that's the best one for you. Right. Uh, get in there and start learning. But the truth of the matter is that all of us who do a lot of intensive Bible study will have a preference but actually, we study all the versions. We we want to understand what all the translators were doing with it. How did they handle it? Why did they put the emphasis on this or that? And to tell you the truth, I, some of the old King James I love, there are certain old English words that I think are better words than the modern words we have. But in the modern, we don't use that word anymore. Right. For example, one example is the word secour, a wonderful old English word. It talks about the work of the Messiah is able to secure uh, us. Uh, Great old English word. We don't use it in modern America. If I started going around saying, well, you know, the Messiah secured us. You know, you don't know whether I'm talking about that he skewered us and I just mispronounced it or what. I mean, it's not a common word. Use the version that you're familiar with, the one that gets you into the study, the one you can
1: learn right and there are, other, are and the other translations that have you know changed jesus to yeshua and and put the yeah, hebrew, it is certain ones that i think some hebrew roots messianics are more comfortable with because then they just kind of read it straight through at the same time
0: uh, our brother david stern published the uh, Jew, the complete jewish bible and all he really did was built you a paraphrase uh, of the scriptures but he laid in certain hebrew terms and hebrew words to introduce the Hebrew thinking, the Hebrew terminology for some of these things, mm-hmm. which is terrific. You know, when you're trying to learn in a messianic level, it, it's good to understand some of those kinds of things.
1: There's also an adjustment in some of the verse numbering and the chapter yeah, numbering well, to, yeah. to to align with the Jewish yes, Bible. But
0: Yeah, there's even a difference between the Jewish Bible and the layout of chapters and verses than there is in our our other Bibles. But that's... That's just the indexing method for the scripture.
1: Again, find the one that best ministers to you, speaks to you, that puts you into the scripture.
0: Find the version that works for you. Get in there and study it. Amen.
1: All right. We have another question uh, from Anonymous. Uh, it says, Shalom, I am a Gentile believer in Yeshua as the Messiah. Uh, is it okay if I wear a kippah? Will I offend an actual Jewish individual by wearing one? Thank you.
0: No. You will not offend anyone Jewish by wearing a kippah. Let's, let me give you a quick instruction on the kippah. Uh, kippah is also the same word kippur, like Yom Kippur. Uh, means atonement. Okay, it's also called a yamaka, which is the slang of yar two words: fear of the king or respect of the king. When you a man puts on a kippa, you're giving public testimony that I'm in awe, I'm in fear of the King of Israel. Well, what a wonderful sign that shows that you you follow the King of Kings, that you follow the Messiah. Um, And that's really what it has to do, and that our atonement is achieved through the work of the Messiah. And so that's what the testimony is to it. And by the way, if you're a Gentile and you go to Israel and you go to the Kotel, they will insist that you wear a kippah. Uh, when you go up to the hotel, so it's it's uh, quite all acceptable for you to wear a kippa if you if you choose to do so. The only thing I say is before you put one on, make sure you understand what it means. So if somebody says why are you wearing it, that you have an answer for it.
1: All right, very good. Our next question comes from Jim. Uh, he's got a couple of questions about some specific verses, uh, particularly Revelation chapter 13 verse 10, uh, where it says, in the King James he said, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. Um, in other translations it says, he who's destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Um, he's asking, who are those that are led into captivity there in Revelation? chapter 13 verse
0: 10 revelation chapter 13 is is talking about two of the destinies of the tribulation saints we're talking about the saints that will be in the tribulation there's actually three destinies for tribulation saints some are destined to take up the sword and they will die by the sword some are destined to captivity they will be taken captive and and they will die in captivity Some, the third destiny, is a little more complicated. It's explained by all of the prophets. Those who escape, survive, and endure to the end and see the coming of the Messiah. So there's three destinies of the saints. And so this this verse is talking about the first two destinies, uh, about taking up the sword and also being led to captivity. Then there are some tribulation saints that will go to captivity. The Lord exhorts you to be faithful. Um, unto death you will receive the crown of life
1: alright next question uh, he asks about 1st Samuel uh, 20 verse 30 when it talks about Saul's anger burned, burned against Jonathan and he said to him you son of a perverse rebellious woman do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and that to the shame of your mother's nakedness the question is, is was Saul's wife really a perverse rebellious woman with this connection to Jonathan
0: well uh, the um um I'm not going to pass judgment on Saul's wife, but what I will do is I'll comment on what Saul said. Saul was so upset with Jonathan, Jonathan's friendship with David. And Samuel, at this point, had already anointed David that he would be king. And Saul was in opposition to this. He wanted his son to become king. He didn't want somebody else's son to become king. And so he was at odds with Samuel about this. He was at odds with David about this. Um, When Jonathan, his son, developed this friendship with with David to help him, it was like Saul couldn't understand that because, well, Jonathan, you're in line to be the king. And it's like you're giving it up for this. So, So how does he blame that? Well, he blames that on, well, it wasn't my fault. It was my wife's fault. My wife was your mother and that reason why you're fouled up is because she was fouled up so it's more of a commentary on i guess he didn't have a really good intimate positive relationship with his wife did he you know he's name calling he's being for per- and he's really trying to uh, uh, give his commentary that he doesn't like jonathan joining up with with uh, the future king david all right
1: very good our next question comes from Ian. Uh, I have an opinion on it, but I would like to hear your insight on 2 Corinthians 3:13 through 18 I know Christianity views it as Paul saying that the Old Testament, quote-unquote, is taken away in Messiah. I view it totally different, but would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you and shalom. The, that passage reads this. Um, and are not... Like Moses, who used who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we are all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit.
0: Well, first of all, let's just kind of get a handle on what it is. What Paul's really emphasizing is that when we were at Mount Sinai and Moses went up, because Moses came into the presence of God, and God protected him, and he put a veil down on to protect the people, you know, because he, he was transferring. Mm-hmm. Um, the ancient Jewish tradition was is that Moses spent too much time in front of Peniel, called the angel of the face. Mm-hmm. Peniel is the angel of the face, uh, the face of God. Um, and there's this angel that supposedly protects, you know, protected Moses from actually glancing into his face. And, but the glory of the Lord is, is coming from him. And so they caused him to glow, and, and there was a, a bright, too bright a light, so they put a veil. Now, so you have this situation in the wilderness where we're trying to have an intimate relationship with God. The one man who goes up and does it, he has to be veiled to come down. And so we have this, quote, veil or veil of separation from us. What Paul's trying to say is, what has changed this time is that God has come from the mountain down to us. Not that we went up to the mountain, but God has come down to us as we had requested to come like a man and speak like a man to us. As a result, the veil's been removed. There is no need for a veil because he, this is the way God has presented himself to us. And so he's talking about how the Messiah's coming to us and speaking the word of God to us and instructing us in the ways of God that we don't need a veil anymore. You know, the veil's been removed. Right. We, we, we don't have that kind of relationship with God. We, we can relate to him directly, face to face, in that regard. So that's really what Paul's trying to do. And he's trying to express how much better this is that the Messiah has done this. Right. That there's a freedom in this. There's, there's the, this is the spirit of God working. This, the, you know, this is so much better.
1: Right. And it's, not, and it's not a matter of that the law of Moses and the words of Moses are no. taken away. The law has, but,
0: all of those are still perfect yeah. truths, per, forever settled in heaven. What we're talking about is how God has now extended himself and reached out to us and manifested himself in this way
1: and that we almost we, we hear the words the teachings of moses yeah. moses taught with a veil that we couldn't be in the presence of god but with can't sure, we can begin can't be. to
0: understand the context of what the messiah is doing unless you accept the words of moses and believe them right. and this is what yeshua was talking about at the end of john chapter five if you do not believe the words of moses how will you believe my words mm-hmm. how will you accept me to be the messiah if you don't already believe what Moses has said. So it's the foundation to even begin to understand. How are we going to understand that the Messiah is sent down to us if we don't understand what was the conflict of God being on the mountain and we couldn't go up to him? If you don't, this separation. If you don't understand the separation, how will you then understand, uh, you know, the the reunion? Mm-hmm. So. Very good.
1: All right. Our next question comes from Eileen. Um, I would like to have these two verses explained because they seem to contradict each other. John 5.37 and Matthew 17.5. John 5.37 reads this, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Matthew 17.5 reads, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom i'm well pleased listen to him so it appears there's a contradiction in the sense that you've neither heard his voice but then his voice was heard from heaven
0: well the first verse the, the you've neither heard his voice or seen his form what he's talking about is like like you and i sitting here talking together you know ephraim i see i see your form and i hear your voice you you see my form you hear my voice this is the level of communication we have Uh, but god doesn't present himself to all men that way god seems to be unseen and the voice that you hear from him comes through the words of the prophets comes through the scripture and 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 so it's not like we're doing here now the messiah has come and oh by the way guess what happens when the messiah shows up things are a little different we hear a voice from heaven speaking and affirming him, not only with John the Baptist, but we also hear at the Mount uh, Tabor, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. We we have these manifestations. People see these things, and they give us testimony of those. Those are simply confirming elements. This is the Messiah. If you get next to the Messiah, you're getting nearer to God than you've ever gotten before. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what the comparison is. They're not in contradiction. I would call them they're in contrast. Uh, They contrast the different positions that we have in a relationship with the Lord.
1: Very good. I've always, one of the things that's just a good rule of thumb whenever you're going into Scripture is assume that there's not a contradiction. Now prove how they both work together.
0: Right. Um, Does everybody hear the voice of God? I mean, does God talk and you hear the voice of God? But there are some amongst us who give testimony that they have heard the voice of God. So how is that possible? Well, that's God who chooses to do that and God who chooses to speak to a particular person. Right. All right. Very good.
1: Next question comes from Steve. Uh, he says this, Monty, I've been reading a lot lately about the scriptures used at the time of Yeshua. I've come across some interesting statements that say that Yeshua used the Septuagint as his source for the scriptures. What is your take on this?
0: Well, the Septuagint is a large portions of the Tanakh, the Old Testament that we have today, written in Greek. And the septuagint, the number actually means seventy because there were seventy scribes. Um, they say seventy rabbis. There were no rabbis back then. There were there were scribes. There were teachers. Right. Um, and there were seventy scribes who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek.
1: And that did and predate not
0: all passages were translated. By the way, let me just make sure I understand it. In fact, the um, these so-called rabbis, scribes, teachers didn't translate big passages of Scripture that had to do with prophecies about the Messiah. And the reason was they didn't want the Gentiles, these Greek-speaking Gentiles, you know, to be second-guessing and coming back and telling them how to interpret the prophecies about the Messiah. The whole second half of of, uh, Jeremiah 33, for example, is not in the Septuagint. You know, that there will never be a want for a man to, to sit on the throne of David. A great messianic prophecy. Not in the Septuagint. And, and the Septuagint changed some of the language in Jeremiah 31. Um, and there's other variations to do with it. So why would a person suggest that maybe the Septuagint was available... Uh, in the days of Yeshua, well, we believe that that had been sent out to the Gentiles, the Greek-speaking people, mm-hmm. that they did have the basis of that. But but while that may be true that such a document exists, there's no evidence that Yeshua ever specifically referred to that. Um, the um, the what Yeshua consistently did was he spoke to the people of Israel. Many believe that he used the common language of Aramaic as opposed to the formal Hebrew that was used by the scribes and Pharisees. But there's other times when he used Hebrew as well. Um, like, like, for example, uh, you know, here in America right now, um, we generally speak English, but it's a, we also mix in some Spanish phrases and words, too. You know, I, I'll say to my friends, adios. Well, that's Spanish. You know, goodbye, my friend. Why didn't I just say in English, goodbye, my friend? You know, we, we, as a normal people, languages are living. And so we know Yeshua was in the same kind of day where languages are living. And it's, it's not really significant one way or the other as to whether or not he spoke only in Hebrew or spoke some in Greek or whatever. Did such, did the Septuagint exist in the days of Yeshua? Yes, we believe it did
1: so then and as a hebrew messiah speaking to hebrew, hebrew people audience, I likely I, wasn't I using he
0: probably would have used now since you brought that up one of the things i've always taught in revelation chapter 1 where the messiah comes walking up to john <clears throat> he says i'm the alpha and the omega yeah. well that's greek right do we really believe that the hebrew messiah is talking to a hebrew prophet and you speaking in greek no yeah. no we we actually and the translators have done that What we believe is, he said, I'm the Aleph and the Tav, that he used the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, oh my goodness, if you do that, that ties back into a whole bunch of other scriptures that have a lot to say about the Messiah elsewhere. And I think that's a more accurate. And so I don't believe that Yeshua spoke Greek at that point. I think he spoke Hebrew to John at that
1: point. Right. So that's the nature of the Septuagint. We believe it was around during that time, but it was a Greek translation of... It was
0: to help the Greeks to understand what Moses had taught in the Torah and and the prophets. Right. Very good.
1: Our next question comes from Joseph. Uh, He asks this, My question is about the Trinity doctrine. Scripture talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the true doctrine according to Scriptures?
0: Well, uh, the teaching that I have given is I don't like the term Trinity because Trinity is, quite honestly, it's a Catholic doctrine. And it has its very specific definition. The Trinity doctrine says that God is three separate persons yet equal. Um, And that's not the way God says that we're supposed to regard him. God says that we're always to regard him in a unified way, not to parse out the different parts of god now we know god has parts i mean even god himself has said that of himself man has become like one part of us uh, and we were made in the image of god um, but god has always ex- expressed himself in a plural form and one of the things that i tie this whole thing into and the way i teach it god presents himself as a plurality not as a trinity as a plurality and god presents himself as truth Now, the definition of truth, according to the Torah, the word of God, is except by the evidence of two or three, you shall not call anything truth. So if you're going to call God truth, God is truth, then there has to be the evidence of two or three. So what is the evidence that we see of God that says there's two or three? Well, repeatedly throughout the scripture, you see something about the Father, you see something about the Son, and you see something about the Spirit of God. This is repeated uh, both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Even Yeshua uses this language uh, to describe God. So one of the questions it comes down to, if you're going to do real theology, you're going to try to understand the doctrine of theology, let us agree on the following principle. If God has described himself, let's use that evidence above anybody else's man's conclusion. If this is the way God has described himself, repeat the description of God the way God gave it. Uh, I always tell everybody, you want to know Monty Judah? Come talk to Monty Judah. Now, you can go talk to a whole bunch of other people about Monty Judah, and you're going to hear a whole bunch of other things, but how accurate will it be if, as compared, you could come and just talk to me? And I'll, I'll tell you who I am. Well, I believe the same thing applies to the Lord. You want to know the Lord? Go talk to the Lord. Let the Lord tell you who he is. Stop listening to other men try to describe it.
1: Amen. Our next question comes from Rebecca. We've got a couple of questions here. We'll start with this one. Um, what are the two olive trees standing by the lampstand as seen in Zechariah, specifically Zechariah 4 at verse 11?
0: Okay, the, ver- the vision of the two olive trees also will turn into several different variations. It's the same vision. And, in fact, if you look at the crest symbol of the state of Israel, coat of arms. the coat of arms, you'll see two olive branches come up around a menorah. That comes from that vision, from that prophecy. And it's, it's an expression to explain all of the whole house of Israel. And it, the two witnesses in the book of Revelation are referred to in that same prophecy, two witnesses standing up uh, to speak on either side of the altar. It has to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where do we get oil from? It's from the olive, the crushing of the olive. The crushing of the olive is a picture of the Messiah who pours out the Spirit, who gives the oil uh, to us. Uh, and and you see, you know, this is what the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, this is what God purposed and intended for the whole house of Israel. These are the symbology, this is the vision that was given to Zechariah specifically for that. So that's what it ties back to. Okay.
1: Uh, The next question um, has to do with this, if I can um, kind of interpret this. She's asking about um, Yeshua in some prophecy state that he's the branch who will join himself to dwell with the whole house of Israel. Asking about this as a future prophecy of the glory of the Lord, referring to the temple dwelling with the people. Asking, is this connected to his spirit um, filling his people with the spirit as in the day of pentecost or the future maybe joining
0: in marriage to the people as a fulfillment of the feast of tabernacles i would lean toward the latter uh you know given the given the alternatives that are given there Uh, it has to do with the messiah dwelling tabernacling with us it has to do we have the fullness of god Uh, With us at that time. So I would lean more toward the latter alternative, given those were the alternatives.
1: Okay. And the last question here I found this one to be fairly interesting. For those of us that come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background who have sought the kabod or the glory of God in so many ways, when somebody says that they are a host of the glory of the presence of God, we invite others to share this feeling have we missed something? Whenever I hear this, I wonder if we've missed something because we don't feel anything. If Yeshua moved in my house, I would know it. He would be present at my table, in my living room, or If I, when I go out of my house. Um, I would not have to feel anything except glad that He was with me. This is how I feel on Shabbat and the feast, because He has promised to meet me. Um, but there is a future time when we will experience the glory of God, um, like the time God's glory, the Kabod, was so great that it filled the temple and that no one could stand here's my question are we to seek this experience are we are to or are we to wait for this to happen um, and is this the way the people or is this only for those people who
0: guard and keep the father's words okay so let me give the short answer to this are we to seek the experience no the experience is short short-sighted what we're supposed to be seeking is to be the bond servant of Yeshua the Messiah and we 're to seek his anointing that he puts upon us authority and and blessing and empowerment to to be the servants of god um, and it 's the anointing is really the outpouring of the spirit uh, so today there, well, let me just say historically, there have been moments when God did some very dramatic things with the spirit of God, exactly what they 're talking about, filling the temple. Uh, the anointing on Moses and then that anointing being given to the 70, you know, for the Sanhedrin, the first Sanhedrin of Israel. Um, and, you know, several people who get anointed, prophets, get anointed and, and speak prophetically. And you see the, what Paul taught about the gifts of the Spirit. Um, the, there are different gifts, different manifestations, different ways it's used by God. Not everybody's the same. Now, sometimes God will have something dramatic with all of us. Day of Pentecost, Mount Sinai. But the vast majority of what God's really operating to is, those are exceptional moments. But what God's really trying to do with all of us is for us to seek his anointing and to become the bondservant of Messiah. uh, To to follow that and to, to be led by the Spirit of God. And that doesn't mean that we have a great feeling. It's, it's more about doing the work of the ministry, doing the work. Because there's no work you can do in the ministry that isn't by the Spirit of God. There's no testimony you can give that isn't by the te- Spirit of God. Every teacher will tell you that my teaching is by the Spirit of God, I believe, you know, and it's all under the anointing of it. So for those, brethren, who emphasize... The charismatic expression, I'm not saying that that's not possible, and I'm not saying that God doesn't want to do that, but that, that's not for everybody. Not everybody is a prophet. Not everybody has the gift of faith. Not everybody is a healer. However, we all have received the anointing of the Lord. Same spirit. Um, it's just however God chooses to use us and, and labor
1: Okay. But, in, but she also describes how when you do go and you meet at the appointed times and at the Sabbath, that's when you feel, I think she's more uh, sensing the sensing the
0: presence of God. Well, that, I think that, that, is, that we should do that. In other words, when we go in and we, uh, when we come near to God, God says, when you come near to me, I will come near to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you approach the Lord either in fasting, at the appointed times, all of those you should have an expectation. In fact, at Sukkot, every year I tell everybody, this is the camp of the Lord. You should expect to see something, experience something in the camp in the course of the week that tells you that God's presence is there. Right, because he is
1: so it's almost like the answer definitely lies somewhere in between like obviously you can't just sit and wait for that to happen you have to go and participate in the appointed times of the Lord and so that's maybe like the thing to be seeking out seeking to follow the commandments of the Lord and those things and the Lord will meet you there
0: well this is the uh, if I could just step back from that just for a moment let me me say this Um, you know the, the Pharisees got a certain idea that to really experience God, it has to do with their prayers. And today, if you go up to an observant Jew and you say, well, I really want to get close with God, you know what he's going to do? He's going to grab the uh, the prayer book and he's going to say, here, come and do morning prayers and afternoon prayers and evening prayers with me. This is the path to that. Right. If you go to a charismatic brother and you say, hey, I want to get closer to God and I really want to know God, he's going to say, well, come on here let us lay hands on you and we'll give you the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You go to a Baptist, and he'll say, well, we need to get you in a Bible study. You know, you need to study the Bible, you know, cover to cover. You know, all that kind of stuff. You come to messianics, what do we say? Why don't you do what the Lord says? Why don't you keep his commandments if you want to get closer to God? Okay. Is there some truth in all of the things that have been? Yes. How much do we emphasize it, though? Is it appropriate to overemphasize one over the other? Shouldn't there be some balance about all of this? Shouldn't we allow God to be sovereign in how he wants to relate to us? That's where I'm coming from. I have many Messianic brethren who have charismatic testimonies. I have many Messianic brethren who come out of the Baptist church and are great scholars of the Scripture. I have many Messianic brethren that came from the Jewish background and came out of the synagogue. Man, they're all on fire about finding out about the Messiah. It, it, it's, it's just different expressions and the, the ways we've learned alright very good <laughs> agreed our
1: next question comes from Crystal knowing that Yeshua did fulfill Torah and will fulfill it obviously using our definition of fulfill and not somebody else's um, how does he fulfill the second Passover is there a connection there to how Yeshua? Well, the second, sure?
0: second Passover in Numbers, it was given as an exception, not as the normal. Um, it was if there's a death in the family, if you're on a journey, you're unable to keep the Passover. The emphasis on the commandment of Passover is so strong. If you don't keep the Passover, then you're setting yourself up not to keep the appointed times for the whole year because it's the first feast that we keep in the first month of Nisan of the the religious cycle of keeping the appointed times. And it's like, you know, one of the things we've always taught, this is simple wisdom, if you don't get the first step done correctly, how are you going to make sure all the other steps are done correctly? And so the emphasis is keep the Passover, set the stage for you to follow and keep all the appointed times of the Lord. That's the reason why Numbers gives the exception for a second passover
1: so it's almost like it, the question i guess being is there a messianic fulfillment or tie to this that second passover just ensuring well, that you it's
0: like a second chance does god give us second chances does it give us third chances fourth chances yes he's very merciful and long-suffering toward us right. you could maybe make a metaphoric argument on that okay
1: all right, we have another question from Darlene. It's very short, but I think we might have a longer answer. Um, could you give your insight into
0: the one new man? Oh, I've been looking forward to this question. <laughs> um, this is a phrase that comes from the book of Ephesians in chapter... Um, uh, chapter um, let me get this other thing out of here. Um, in which the Peter... Or excuse me, Paul is trying to explain to the believers at Ephesus, and by the way, there's a whole bunch of Gentile believers, and he's trying to explain to them how they are included in God's great plan. And so one of the things that he says to him, he says, now before you knew the Messiah, you were far off. You were separate from Israel. You were separate from the commonwealth of Israel. You were separate from the things of God. But now you've been made near." because of the redemptive work of the Messiah. And let me read to the exact verse. This is Ephesians 2, uh, verse 13. But now in the Messiah, Yeshua, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. So he's talking about this transition of how those that were Gentiles, they weren't part of Israel, you were far off from the things of God. Now you've been brought near as as a result of the work of the Messiah. And it was always the intent of God from the very beginning. This goes all the way back to Abraham, that in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. However, he started with Abraham and his descendants and the family and became Israel and so forth. How in the world is God supposed to reach the whole world, all the Gentile nations, if he's just working with Israel? Well, no, the answer is by bringing the Messiah, the Messiah is to make a way for all men, all families of the earth to come to the Lord. It's a redemption for all mankind, not just for the descendants of, uh, physical descendants of Abraham. And one of the most powerful themes in all the scripture is that the definition of the remnant of Israel, the true line of Israel, isn't always native born. Uh, if you even look at the the heritage and the ancestry of the Messiah, there are moments when there's Gentiles inserted. Uh, but it comes down to the Messiah. Is, is the dominant line that through the tribe of Judah? Yes. Through King David? Yes. Uh, and a part of Israel? Yes. But it's also got these other things inserted along the way. Okay? Now, he uses this phrase, far away and near. Okay? If you go toward the end of that chapter... He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He actually quotes this verse. And Ephraim, I've asked you to do this. Pull out Isaiah uh, 57, verse 19. This is the quote that is going to be at the latter part of this chapter. 57,
1: 19. Verse 19. Creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near. Says the Lord, and I will heal him.
0: Right, and that phrase, "He who is far and who is near," is a reference that it's interpreted. He who is far are the Gentiles; they're way off in the faraway nations. He who is near is the one who is in Israel. God has come to Israel. Speak so that so what that Isaiah is prophesying. There's a day coming. When all of the world, those who are far away, those who are near, we're all going to experience the same peace, the same shalom. Well, that's what Paul's trying to teach here in all of Ephesians 2. So as a result, we get this phrase, one new man. Let me just read the first to you. Um, verse uh, 14. For he himself is our peace. He's the Shalom, remember the Shalom of Isaiah 5719. Who made both groups, who are the two groups? Those who are far away, those who are near, into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, because in the temple system they used to separate and not let the Gentiles into the temple, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity or the, the conflict, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, which is what the Pharisees did. They took the Torah and they made it, they made the teaching against the Gentiles. He said he's, he's removed all of these obstacles. He's removed the teaching of the Torah against the Gentiles. He's removed the dividing wall, you know, from it. By the way, the Torah was never set up to be opposed to the Gentiles. It always was for the Gentiles. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Isaiah 57:19. Those who want peace will come from those that are far away, those that are near. And so if you, if you want a more detailed study on, on Ephesians 2, go study Isaiah 56 and 57, because that's what Paul's teaching. He's teaching Isaiah 56 and 57. And in fact, let me take you to Isaiah 56. Let me read to you so you get the sense of this. Now, mind you, this is a completely separate chapter, but the verse we read in 5719 that's the conclusion of the argument being made by here. Uh, here's what it says in Isaiah 56, beginning at verse 6. Also the foreigners... So who are we talking about? Those that are far away. Who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to his servants, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath holds fast my covenant. These are Gentiles, foreigners, who keep Sabbath and hold fast to the covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. We're talking about the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Did you know that Yeshua quoted this verse over the Jews setting up in the temple system that excluded Gentiles? He was angry. In the temple, and he overturned the money changer tables. All of the things that the religious leadership in Israel had done to keep the Gentiles away, to block their way from coming, he went over there and overturned all the tables and was spoke very harshly to the temple leaders because he says the Scripture says, "My house will be a house for all peoples." Now, right now, I can tell you, the average Christian thinks, "Well, the temple was set up for the Jews." No, it wasn't. The Bible says the temple was set up for the alien and the sojourner to join with the native-born and worship the God of Israel, which is exactly the way it was first set up in the wilderness, which is the way it was supposed to be set up in Jerusalem, so that all the nations could come and worship the Lord. Of course, that didn't quite work out that way. Now, here's Paul teaching the Gentiles and saying, here's your rightful place in the Lord. As a result of the work of the Messiah, there should be no more separation with you. Remove all the the previous teaching that was opposed to you and against you. The Messiah has brought you in. You are part of the commonwealth of Israel. You are part of the temple service. One spirit, one baptism, one set of commandments for both Gentile and native born. He's trying to emphasize we're all the same guy. We're all one new man. We're We're not Jews and Gentiles. Now, the church has been teaching this dramatically you know, uh, for years, and what they've done is twisted this teaching into, well, the church, well, God now works with one new man, that would be the church. Forget the Jews. My Messianic Jewish brethren, they teach, well, God made us one new man, the Jews. Forget the Gentiles. Both of them are wrong. If you read very clearly, it says that the two groups have been made one to become one new man. It's two groups have to be joined to become one new man. That's the understanding of that verse. Very good.
1: Our last question um, comes from Kay, and um, she began a study here on um, looking into what the eighth day, or the number eight, means. And it led her to studying Shavuot, which is the day after a seventh Sabbath. It's a type of eighth day, and led her then also into a study of looking at the book of Ruth. Um, which is traditionally read on Shavuot, um, asking, pointing out a couple of these patterns here, um, where Ruth, being a Gentile, and Naomi, being Jewish, they were all they were brought together into the Promised Land. About Jew and Gentile coming coming home, coming together. Question is this: um, Will that be when we all go to the land? Be on say an eighth day? Uh, Teachers have taught that Yeshua will come back on the seventh day in a thousand year reign. Um, She's wondering if there's some sort of other connection to the eighth day that she doesn't necessarily have that that question answered yet, but she's asking um, with regards to that. Also, making the other parallel that Naomi believed the father had punished her, such as the Jews being brought into tribulation. Ruth marries Boaz, pointing out that that she was married into a Messiah-type figure, that the non-Jew was married into Boaz, into the the family as a part of a um, with Boaz being a messiah type figure in the story, and how that all possibly ties to the end times um, all coming together into the land. How would um, what, what are your insights right, on what's that?
0: The lady's name, uh, Kay. All right, Kay, let me tell you this kind of study that you're doing. You're doing what a study, of what we call numerology study, and what is called a thematic study. Let me go ahead and just tell you thematic studies are not good studies to develop doctrine. Doctrine is developed from the plain sense of the text. And and in other words, that you, you exegetically, you go into the text and you extrapolate what that text is saying. That's where we have teaching and doctrine and instruction from. What you're involved in is what we call a thematic study, where we're looking for patterns. We're looking for hints uh, of things and so forth. So they're fun studies, and they're very enlightening. They, they're a delight to your soul when you do these things, um, which is part of what the Scripture is supposed to do. But don't substitute a thematic study for a doctrinal study. Mm-hmm. Okay? The study of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and so forth is its own specific study, and there are very specific principles that come out of that study. It was never intended to explain the number 8 to you. Okay? Coincidentally, the number 8 is in there. So let me just step back to the numerology thing, and let's just talk about the theme of the number 8, because it's throughout the Scripture, just like other numbers. The number 8 means, what I've always shared with people, it means new beginnings. It's the first day of the new week. And we've, that's what we find is the dominant theme associated with the number 8. You can go to many places in the Scripture, and you'll find the number 8, and eight of this, eight of that. And, and in every case, the theme, new beginnings, seems to fit. It seems to give a hint of that something new is getting started. Something's new and different. Like
1: the priesthood. In the-
0: exactly. In the Torah. And so there's a whole sort of those. You could go through any of the other numbers and do the same thing. Uh, the number four is the theme of the Messiah um and there's a whole series of things four forty 400, four hundred four thousand they, they have to do with the most significant digit is the four they have to do with the messiah same thing with the number eight eight eighty 800, eight hundred eight thousand they have to do with new beginnings um and so that's the fun part of the study so i uh, you know i encourage you to you know study the scripture and you can ask these questions but separate out and parse out your studies so that you understand, one, you're doing a thematic study, a numerology study, versus an exegetical study trying to understand uh, a specific block of Scripture. So that's kind of how I...
1: It it wouldn't surprise me if there is a a fantastic prophetic pattern and parallel in the book of Ruth and and in some of those little things she's drawn out. And
0: in fact, we, we know in all of the Scripture that... There are different levels of the scripture, and part of the joy of studying the scripture and getting to know the scripture is to see these different levels, the Peshat, the plain sense of the text, the remez, the hint about the Messiah. Uh, there's the so, the mysterious element that ties in, the drosh, the, the principled study, the truths that emerge you know from it, and those are different levels of study that we learn about the scripture, and parsing those out, understanding those, it's part of the joy of uh, of studying the scripture.
1: Absolutely. And I I think that the the story of Ruth and that story has been a great encouragement to a lot of brethren, especially yeah. Gentile and non exactly you know, Gentile. coming in and it, being it able turns to turns
0: out that Ruth turns out to be of the lineage of the Messiah. Yeah. And she wasn't even part of the people. Right. But she makes this commitment, you know, your people will be my people, you know, your God will be my God, mm-hmm. you know, that commitment. Well, you know, that's those who are far away have been drawn near. Yeah. Um, S- same
1: goes for Tamar and Rahab, all in that same line all as well. All
0: were Gentiles; they weren't of the native born, but they're part of the lineage of the Messiah, getting to us.
1: And so, we should always let those things be an encouragement to us, wherever we are from. Obviously, you know, K okay, being encouraged by the story. Um,
0: you know, who, what lineage that you're from? If you know the Messiah, uh, you've been made new, and the Messiah, you're fully qualified. You know, even better than native born and we talk a
1: lot on these Q and A's about identity and being adopted into the family of Messiah, and it's like letting letting the the family of God you're welcome in to sit at the master's table, whether you're native born or a stranger from the land.
0: We live in a world in where they like to parse the world down into Jew and Gentile. But in the Lord, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. You're all part of the children of Abraham, you're all part of the Commonwealth of Israel. You have the same spirit. You have the same Messiah King. Wonderful. We all have. Amen. Amen. There it is. Any more? That's the last one. All right. Well, let me close us in a word of prayer. Thank you for joining us for this program. We look forward to sending in additional questions for the next program. Again, qa at lion dot net. That's the email address. You can send your questions, and we'll try to make them a part of the next program uh, when we come together again. Thank you. Uh, Father, thank you for this time that we've had and able to open the Scripture to look at some of the things that you teach us and to answer some of the questions of the brethren. We pray, Lord, that the answers will edify them and that by your Holy Spirit you will confirm uh, these answers for the brethren to encourage them and build them up in their most holy faith. I thank you again for all of our brethren, Lord, and I pray that, uh, that they will know that they are part of the same family. And that we are thankful, Lord, for your redemption. So you made us um, all of the same group. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Shalom. Shalom.